This time I'd like for Audrey Penner to come up and do our scripture reading from Acts chapter 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Lord God, you are clear. You're a God who speaks and reveals himself as well as his will. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to see what your will for our lives is when it comes to the local church. The God, you have supplied us from your word, um, Lord, what the church is, as well as how the local church functions. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to see very clearly from the scriptures tonight what it is you have for us as we look to submit ourselves to one another in Christ that we would be believers who covenant with other believers. God, would you move in us in a great and mighty way tonight as we think seriously about this authority that you've established on earth, but looking forward to your kingdom. God, bless us tonight as we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I shared with you how I came to be a part of the, what I've called the capital C church. My testimony is that I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ because a youth worker from the local church came to my home and shared the gospel with me there. He showed me from the Bible that I was a sinner in need of a savior, that if I would repent of my sins and put my trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and through the grave, then he would forgive me of my sins and give me eternal life. And at nine years old, I believed. I believed the gospel and I joined the capital C church. I wish I could say that I was baptized quickly thereafter, but that was not the case. I struggled to articulate the spiritual reality that had occurred inside of me. And so the church that my family attended had hesitations about me being baptized. And then when I could say the right words the right way, we had difficulty scheduling my baptism. Uh, my dad had military duties with the National Guard and would routinely miss uh, the, the, the Sunday gathering. And so we had difficulty scheduling that baptism. And on top of these pressures, I had a dreadful fear of being in front of people. It didn't matter that there were kids younger than me getting baptized. 
I hated the idea of being in front of a bunch of strangers. So I didn't get baptized. And weeks turned into months, and months turned into years. We moved away from that church, and then we stopped going altogether. As teenagers tend to do, I became enamored with members of the opposite sex, getting a car, getting a job to pay for that car, sports, and anything other than the things of God. I didn't turn away from my faith in Jesus, but I did grow complacent to it. Until the Holy Spirit, who lived and dwelled within me, started probing my heart. He convicted me of sin, and not in an overbearing sense of guilt that just weighed upon me heavily. No, that wasn't it at all. It was more of a a gentle brush off the shoulders of any weight that was holding me down and, and reorienting me towards an overgrown path. I was 17 when I told my mother I wanted to get back into church. I knew my grandmother attended a church in the area pretty regularly, so we started attending with her. Uh, They were small in number, and most of the congregation was in their 60s or above. But that didn't bother me at all. It was fine by me. We sat on the back row, once a back row Baptist, always a back row Baptist, I suppose. But the church was smaller, so you noticed it less. And we sat with my grandmother, and occasionally we would get to hear from my uncle Ira. Um, He would get to preach. He wasn't the pastor, but when the pastor was out of town, my uncle Ira would preach. My uncle Ira uh, was a World War II veteran, had been in the ministry at that point for well over 50 years, and a cancer survivor. And what's great about my uncle Ira is he had this cheerful spirit that you know faithful Christians are supposed to have. He preached one Sunday on obedience. Now, I don't remember him mentioning baptism at all. But that's where I knew I had been disobedient. I had neglected the command in scripture to be baptized. So during the invitation, I stood up, walked down the relatively short aisle and embraced my uncle Ira as I told him, I know I need to be baptized and I want you to be the one who does it. And during an evening worship service of about a dozen people, he baptized me in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to show the reality of the decision I had made eight years prior. It was only then that I became a member of a local church. If I can convey anything to you tonight other than the difference between the capital C church and a local church, it is this. For eight years of my life, I was a part of the capital C church, but not a local church. And it hurt my walk with Christ. In continuing our series, Take Me to Church, Tonight, we aim to answer the question, what is a local church? What is a local church? Lord God, would you bless us in this time tonight? 
as we look to answer this question and know that your word supplies the answer. God, would you bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To review last week, we answered the question, what is the capital C church? And I told you that the article V is deliberate, as well as the capitalization of the letter C. We learned that the Catholic church, that's not the Roman Catholic church, but what is better known as the universal church is the assembly of all Christians from all ages who will gather at the end of history. That is the answer to the question, what is the church? The assembly of all Christians from all ages who will gather at the end of history. This is Jesus's church, his ecclesia to get into the Greek or assembly that he mentions in scripture. We looked at some metaphors used in scripture to show what the church is supposed to be like. The church is called to be living stones of which Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation stone, the most important stone that we are all built upon. We are a flock of sheep and Jesus is our good shepherd and we hear his voice and he tends to us. We are the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the bride of Christ, right? And he is our bridegroom, the one who lays down his life for his bride. With all this in mind, we must consider our place in the capital C church. And once we know we're in the capital C church, we must live out what is expected of the church in scripture. So that was all review from last week. Tonight, we turn our attention towards answering this new yet similar question. What is a local church? If the capital C church is the assembly of all Christians from all ages who gather at the end of history when Jesus returns then what is a local church? Again, we must turn to one of Jesus's uses, usage, usage, what am I trying to say? Uses of the Greek word for church, ekklesia, which means assembly. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We'll look at verses 15 through 20. Many of you will be familiar with a verse in this passage. You've probably even quoted it a time or two, but you may not be aware of the context it is found in. So let's look together at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. God's word says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two witnesses along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, 
there am I among them. If the brother refuses to listen, tell it to the church, the ecclesia, the assembly. Ah, but this is a different assembly, isn't it? Jesus is not instructing his disciples to take it before the church. Rather, he is instructing them to take it before a local church. And he uses similar language that that he used back in Matthew chapter 16, the conversation between him and Peter that we looked at last week. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And you'll remember, if you were here last week, I told you to picture a cowboy roping a calf at a rodeo to visualize this binding and loosing, right? You want it to be bound, that it's yours, it's guaranteed. This is to illustrate what is known as church discipline, something that we don't talk about very much. Then Jesus delivers the promise that we all know and love and is still true. If two agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's a beautiful and rich promise. From this passage, we can begin to see what a local church is. Just by taking a look and noting a few things in passing. Here's a few. First, it is a group of Christians. It is a group of Christians. It may not come right out and say it, but the context tells us. The context of this passage is that Jesus is instructing his disciples, his students. One day, the leaders of the church. Second, it is a regular gathering. It is a group of Christians and it is a regular gathering. It is assumed that this assembly will meet in the future as it tends to do. It is a regular gathering. Third, There is a congregation-wide exercise of affirmation and oversight. There is a congregation-wide exercise of affirmation and oversight. The offense of the brother is to be brought before the congregation. The congregation has authority to be listened to by the brother. And then they have instructions to exclude the brother if he continues in his sin from the assembly. Fourth, their purpose is to represent Christ and his rule on the earth. Their purpose is to represent Christ and his rule on the earth. And you may say, where where do we see that? Where do we get that? It's in the very last phrase, right? The assembly gathers and agrees In the name of Jesus, in his holy name. There is no other name in heaven and on earth by which someone must be saved than the name of Jesus. The promise of his presence is rich, but it should be noted that his presence is needed because this kind of church, a local church, is messy. 
but it is also heavenly. Because if a local church is a group of Christians, then it actualizes a portion of the capital C church in time and space. And that is revealed at one time in particular, what we call the Lord's day. The Lord's day, that phrase is only used one time in scripture and it's Revelation chapter one. Verses nine and 10 say this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. This is the only mention in scripture and John doesn't elaborate on what it means. So we must assume that his audience, the first century Christians, know what it means. It's called the Lord's Day because it's the day of the week that Jesus rose from the grave. You see, whereas Jews have claimed Saturday as their day of worship because of the Sabbath, Christians have claimed Sunday as their day of worship because it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And so we continue that tradition. When Christians come together on Sunday, we are the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. But the question quickly sprouts up in our mind, what makes a group of Christians a local church? And this is a question that has been answered repeatedly throughout the centuries. We're not the first to ask that. The Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin answered by pointing to a congregation gathered for right preaching of the gospel and the proper administration of the gospel ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's two very important markers for what makes up a church, preaching the gospel and administration of the ordinances. We see those markers repeated even today, but with different words. Um, I just kind of plucked two books that I read recently off the shelf and to see what, how did they define this? How did they show what a church was? Uh, Matt Merker in his book, Corporate Worship, says this. A local church is an assembly of blood-bought, spirit-filled worshipers who build one another up by God's word and affirm one another as citizens of Christ's kingdom through the ordinances. Another one, uh, J.T. English uh, wrote a book called Deep Discipleship, and he says this, the local church is manifested in local communities of people who regularly gather to worship the triune God, proclaim his word, participate in the ordinances, carry out church discipline, and engage non-Christians with the gospel. And then our very own Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Now, I don't know if you know this about the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's our statement of faith uh, for Southern Baptist churches. Uh, two people were on the committee that submitted this. Uh, uh, more than two people were on this committee. Two people in particular that I want to present to you were on this committee that presented it to the Southern Baptist Convention to get it uh, basically to where it is today. One of them was our pastor, Steve Gaines. The other one was his predecessor, Adrian Rogers, both of which were on this committee that presented to the Southern Baptist Convention and then 
clarify that this is our statement of faith for Southern Baptist churches in this denomination. And it says this in Article 6. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for the service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. The New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all the redeemed of all the ages, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He's a, a, they're, of course, talking about the capital C church there at the end. In all of these quotes and these statements, we see a theme, don't we? The two markers, every one of them mentioned, were ministry of the word or preaching of the gospel and administration of the ordinances baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Two symbolic yet meaningful acts given and ordered to the church by Jesus Christ. And these markers become incredibly helpful to us in particular here at YA Worship because we see why we do not qualify as a local church. Week in and week out, we will preach the gospel. We will administer the ministry of the word, but we do not regularly administer baptism and Lord's Supper. We are not a local church. We are a ministry of a local church. We see that these two markers have been present in local churches since the very beginning of the capital C church on the day of Pentecost, right? We heard Audrey read from it. We'll read it again in Acts chapter two, verses 36 through 42. The apostle Peter is preaching the gospel to a large group of Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And it says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We hear Peter preaching the gospel and we see the command to be baptized. All those who received the gospel that day were baptized. And you notice something? Somebody was keeping count. <laughs> Who's that guy? 
And how come we don't know about him? The one hearing so-and-so got saved. All right, did they get baptized? Yeah, yeah, they did. All right, add them to the list. Somebody kept count that day. 3,000 souls were added. Added to what? To the capital C church, yes. But also to the local church there in Jerusalem. And what did that local church look like? What was it marked by? That last verse told us, didn't it? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This mention of the breaking of bread likely covers the Lord's Supper as well as the fellowship meal. You see, that is, after all, how Jesus enacted the ordinance at the Last Supper, right? And many local churches continued that practice, including our old friends, the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us about that. We hear from the Apostle Paul as he rebukes the Corinthians for using their gatherings around the Lord's table as occasions to make social distinctions between the rich and the poor. He says to them in verses, uh, verses 17 through 32. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his meal, his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world." we learn from this passage that the ordinances are to be safeguarded. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper have objective meaning. They're not just what we want them to be or make them up to be in our heads. 
They have a rich meaning in and of themselves. And Jesus Christ is the one who determines that meaning as well as its parameters. We have again in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, a summary of their meaning and the parameters. Christian baptism is the immersion, that means going under, of a believer in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. Uh, risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and the Lord's Supper. That means it comes before. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. We see from a few of these verses in 1 Corinthians that not everyone can or should participate in the Lord's Supper. If you drink or eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, and thus drink and eat judgment on yourself. It says at the very end of that passage that if you judge yourself, it will rescue you from being judged. And so it is something to be considered and reflected on. I would join with Paul and say, let each person examine himself or herself and then eat of the bread and then drink of the cup. Our ordinances require intentionality as they are part of our worship and our witness to a watching world. Paul mentions earlier in verse 19 that there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And this is why we have different denominations in the capital C church. Local churches disagree about the gospel and the ordinances. Since that is what marks a church as being a church, we rightly have separation. For now. For now. We wouldn't say that they aren't Christians. We might if they do not hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation by faith, not works. Rather, in most cases, we would just say we disagree. And that's okay. What's important is that Christians have a local church they can belong to. A local body of believers who they can commit themselves to and allow to watch over their soul as they are discipled more into the image of Jesus Christ. Remember, I joined the capital C church when I was nine, but I didn't join a local church until I was 17. And my testimony today at 31 is that my walk with Christ was hindered for those eight years. As soon as I became a member of a local church through baptism and the church's formal membership process, I rapidly started growing in my walk with Christ. There was now a people 
Although imperfect people, there were people I could trust to hold me accountable to my sin, the sin in my life, and help me in my pursuit for holiness. This is the right response to the grace of God, is it not? Obedience to what Jesus Christ commanded of his people, repent and be baptized. Let a person examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. I preach to you what was preached to me by my uncle Ira. Would you be obedient to what Jesus expects of you as a follower of Christ? If you have not been baptized in accordance with the scriptures, would you set up a time to speak with me? If you have taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, would you repent and seek God's forgiveness over that sin in particular? Lastly, a quick word on church membership. The air that we breathe in society today is that of skepticism when it comes to any particular external authority. That's the automatic nature of our heart is to question and doubt any external authority. And I've seen it. I've seen it in how we talk about our presidents. I've even felt it at times in how I'm treated as a pastor. I hear it in whispers about why someone doesn't see the point of becoming a member of the local church. The lie that our generation buys is that all external authority is something to be challenged. And the only authority that you can trust is the feeling that you can muster in yourself. And that is a lie that will take you straight to the depths of hell. We are, in, we are taught in scripture to respect authority. Obey those in authority so much as they align themselves with the scriptures. I'm asking you to be different. Be different in how you view external authority, especially the local church. And not necessarily Bellevue Baptist Church. I pray that you would find a church where the following interchange can take place spiritually. This is my prayer for any and all of you. That you would find a church body that would say to you, we recognize your profession of faith, baptism, and discipleship to Christ as valid. Therefore, we publicly affirm and acknowledge you as belonging to Christ and the oversight of our fellowship. And that, that you would be able to respond like so. Insofar as I recognize you as a faithful gospel declaring church, I submit my presence and my discipleship to your love and your oversight. That is an interchange I pray for every single one of you. And if you agree with that prayer and that desire, we can be comforted in this promise. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven.